Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Work Inspired Podcast. I am your host, George Lucas Pfeiffer, and today we have an incredible episode for you. Our very special guest is Susan Schmidt Winchester, Senior Vice President and Chief HR Officer for Applied Materials, which is a massive global semiconductor company headquartered in Silicon Valley. Susan is also the co-author of an incredible new book called Healing at Work. Today, we're going to dive into the culture and ways of working at one of Fortune's most admired companies, as well as uncover how as many as two thirds of us are subconsciously being impacted professionally by experiences that happened in our childhood and in our past. Get ready to find out how the workplace can be used to change ourselves for the better. Get ready to work inspired. Susan, thank you so much for being on the show today. So excited to speak with you. I know we've got a lot to talk about, uh, but thank you so much. You're busy and, and your time is very valuable. So thanks thanks for dedicating some of it to uh, to our show. Sure. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's start because we've got a couple things to discuss. I want to I want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at Applied Materials, and then I and then I you've got an exciting book coming out. So uh, a little bit of a two part episode here. But why don't you start by just giving our listeners a little bit of a background on your professional career, kind of leading up to what you're doing now? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to, George. Thank you. So I have worked in human resources for now 33 plus years. I joke with my friends and family that my middle name is HR. <laughs> <laughs> I love the profession. I'm very fortunate to have been able to work in a number of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, I've served as head of HR for two of those companies now for over 14 years and currently head of HR for a company called Applied Materials. We're a $17 billion company based in Silicon Valley. And uh, the semiconductor industry is hot, hot, hot. So it's very exciting. So, yeah, I've, I've worked in HR all those years. I've worked in pretty much every job of HR. And uh, I love I love the work. Excellent. Applied Materials mm-hmm. is is really I mean, like I, I was doing a little bit of research on your company and you guys have some incredibly notable designations, uh, one of the world's most admired companies, uh, one of the most sustainable companies in the world. Uh, I mean, tell me a little bit about the culture that you guys have created at Applied Materials that has gotten you some of this recognition. Well, it's an amazingly special company. I feel very privileged to have been selected to join them back in 2018. And we have a CEO, Gary Dickerson, who is a visionary, passionate, inspired leader. Mm. And, you know, his vision for our company, for our future, actually just recently, the company changed its mission statement to be very focused on on the societal impact of what we do. Mm. So in the past, it was all about making possible the future technology for the world. Now it's about making possible a better world for for everyone, basically. And because of his vision um, and, you know, where he's positioned the company and his his passion for our customers, that goes throughout the entire company. And so the the piece about our our work on environmental, social and governance is really outstanding. So he shared about um, almost a year ago at one of our big industry organization association meetings, his vision for our ESG strategy and really put in place a framework around how do we impact the one-time effect, which is how do we run our operations, the 100-time effect, which is 100 times impacting our industry, the semiconductor industry, and then how do we impact at a 10,000-time level um, uh, the electronics uh, of the world, and you know, how do we help sustainably uh, with our products, our technology, how we run our own operations. And of course, that's galvanized lots of people in the company who've come together cross-functionally, our product technology people working on sustainable products, our supply chain organization, HR, environmental health and safety teams. And a big piece of this, of course, is our culture of inclusion. And how do we really become a company where great people can come and be who they are and be valued and accepted and have fair and equal opportunity for for advancement and development. So it's a really fun place to be. I'm inspired and uh, I'm not surprised the company is being recognized by a number of different organizations. Do you find that when a company like yours that has a clear mission that is is dedicated to sustainability and making the world a better place, 
that has this this ingrained it within its culture from from your perspective as head of HR is it do you see that that it's easier to attract the right people and keep the right people on your team? Absolutely. Purpose matters. People want to work for companies where they are aligned to the company's purpose. Mm. And I love how Gary shifted the purpose to be all about making possible a better future for everyone. Mm. And, and it really starts with, you know, our relationship with our employees, our relationship with our customers, you know, especially given all the things that have happened over the last year with COVID, we kept front and center that our, we had two priorities, one maintaining and building trust with our customers, our employees, our suppliers, our partners, and secondly, coming out of the pandemic even stronger. And as a result of that, you just see this, you know, pulling together as an organization, doing whatever we can to support our people all over the world and continuing to find creative ways to support our customers. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it's just a really special place to be. And so, many, yeah, purpose matters. I guess that's my point. Definitely. How many team members does Applied Materials have? We have about 24,000 uh, wow. employees. And we also work with a, a great team of uh, contractors, about 12,000 contractors. So we, we're all over the world, uh, Asia, Europe, and U.S., and uh, 24,000 full-time employees. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the change that we've experienced in the last 12 months. And we talk about this. I mean, we started this this show right as COVID was hitting uh, back at the beginning of last year. And every episode we've discussed it. And, the, uh, you know, some of the the short term and long term impacts of this pandemic. Tell me, how, how have, have you had to adapt the way that your team works or the way that you continue to strengthen your culture, your internal communications, has the pandemic had any sort of an impact on that from your perspective in HR? Absolutely. I I don't know too many HR leaders who could say no. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, so it it was dramatic. Obviously everybody literally went from everyone showing up at work every day to everyone staying home. Mm -hmm. And then literally within about 24 hours, you know, obviously the semiconductor industry was deemed to be an essential industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when we look at our global workforce, um, George, about 70% are, are already coming on site. We have a large number of people who are on site at customers our customer engineers. We've got many thousands of those individuals who are on site with our, our customers. We also have manufacturing. We're making extremely technical, high technology equipment to support our customers. So about 70% of our workforce, is already working. They have been working the whole time. Uh, and then also our engineers working in the labs. So about 30% of our global workforce are working remotely. And it varies by location. You know, some locations, our headquarters location, it's, it's a higher percent than that. But roughly 30% of us are all still working remotely. Um, and then during that whole period of time, you know, sort of this combination of some on-site, some not on-site, I would say that through the world of technology, we were able to come together in ways that we never did before in in terms of, you know, we've never really leveraged technology to do all employee meetings where we could Mm -hmm. actually bring everybody together. We typically would do a live meeting, it would get recorded, it gets shared around the world. Now with the pandemic, We've we've we, we've become so much more virtual and so more so much more adaptable virtually that it's actually created this entirely different experience to to bring people together. So perfect example, something we started doing that we hadn't done before, although I'm not sure why we never did it because it's really cool, is we've created these um, people manager meetings where you know they were instigated or we, we began them during p- the pandemic when we just needed to communicate directly to people managers sort of the frontline you know leaders of the company um, making sure they had up-to-date information about different policies pay levers uh, time off policies uh, you know everything going on with covid so we literally created this um like a panel of HR leaders and our EH&S leaders, our facilities leaders, getting on a, a phone call, literally a Zoom call, uh, or Teams, I guess it was, and just putting out some slides, information, and then letting our managers ask us anything. 
And, and, you know, get this cadence of a relationship, this building of relationship. We're all in this together. We're going to answer every question we can. If we don't know the answer, we'll capture it. and We'll get back to you. Really, I just love it. We've done some of that with our, our leaders in, in Asia. And and so I, I'm I don't know. I, I just feel like the company came together. And again, keeping the, the whole focus of trust with our, our customers, our employees, our suppliers, our partners at the forefront, their health and safety and then also finding ways for really creative communications. So I think culture's actually gotten stronger. Mm. Now, you know, the continued drain on people working from home, and there's some great research out by Microsoft. I just read a report that they put forward is that we are becoming a bit too siloed. So we Mm. spend a lot of time with just the people we're normally working with. So we have to find ways to, to make sure we're looking at building cross organizational relationships virtually. But yeah, it's, it's been a whole different ballgame of learning how to work together and, and support getting information into the hands of the people that need it. Yeah, very interesting, especially, you know, you're a global company. So there was opportunity before the pandemic to connect remotely, you know, to all your different offices around the world. But it's very interesting, I think, talking to a company like yours that was an essential, you know, business. So you had people that continued to work throughout 2020. Uh, and, and then you also had people like yourself or, you know, people from from HQ that were home, you know. So everybody's trying to figure out what does this future look like where there's this mix of people that are in in person and 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 then in in a remote capacity to some extent um have you figured out certain (laughs) practices or policies that that work better than others as it relates to maybe somebody that's even that you know that on a you know without the pandemic you would have been in person you know it's not the geographic problem of of connecting digitally have you guys figured out kind of a, a way to balance out what might be post-pandemic work ways of working, you know, in a flexible scenario where maybe people are in the office three out of five days a week. Uh, are, are, is there any advice that you can share for all the rest of us that I think, uh, you know, a lot of industries were all remote because we weren't essential and we had to go and maybe there are certain pockets, but uh, I think I think that's the big question on people's mind is what is that hybrid going to look like as the vaccines roll out and we come out of the, you know, hopefully out of this pandemic sooner than later. I think it's a great question, and I think it's going to be very specific to each company. Mm-hmm. Every company's got a different makeup of its workforce. And so all I can share is how we're thinking about it. Obviously, talking to a lot of other chief HR officers also. Um, I think the year of 2021 is going to be a year of experimentation. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, certainly at our company, as well as other companies, are going to be experimenting with different ways of working. And, um, you know, you've got to balance the business needs. So the business and the customer needs are key. We're in business to support our customers and also trying to figure out this piece around employees, expectations, desire for flexibility. And we're actually right in the middle of when tomorrow we're going to be launching another pulse survey of our global workforce, asking for their input on a variety of different things about how we work going forward. Mm-hmm. And, and that's for everybody. It's not just people that are working remotely, but also our, P, our team members that are working uh, on site too. And so I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. I think business context is going to be a key, you know, a key consideration. And as the war on talent gets even more intense, we've got to figure out a balance. I don't think this is, this is not a problem to be solved. It's not a, either you come to work or you mm-hmm. stay remotely. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a tension to be managed, right? You've mm-hmm. got the tension of the business requirements. You've got the tension of employees that have benefited and value more flexibility. And so how do you create solutions that manage that tension as effectively as possible? Mm-hmm. We don't know all the answers right now, but I can tell you that this idea of let's experiment Let's not make major dramatic changes immediately, but let's try some different things, taking the input from our people, the role requirements, the business needs, and try to figure out if we can come up with some solutions that help balance those tensions. And I personally believe that flexibility has got to be a key ingredient because it's hard to find great talent. And I think the companies that will differentiate themselves in the future will be able to figure out that flexibility piece 
as well as meeting the business needs, but it can't be just the business needs or just flexibility. It's got to be a combination of both. And so we're going to experiment. We're going to try some different things and, and learn some different things and adapt as we go. So well said. I mean, the fact that we've seen more peer-to-peer sharing than ever before. I think that people are very interested to to understand what what uh, other organizations are doing, but no, also knowing that you're 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 absolutely you know correct. It's 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 a individual, unique solution for each business, and a lot of it is very much an experimentation so far. You know, and I think flexibility goes two ways. One, it's the concept of we're going to allow for more flexibility with the way our teams work, but it's also, we're going to put in, we're going to put in place policies and solutions that are flexible enough to change because this is an experiment and we don't know exactly what the right recipe is yet. And we'll probably be still figuring it out over the, the course of the next few quarters. So uh, wonderful, wonderful advice and, 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 and congratulations on the success that you guys have had in the culture that you've built. It's, it's fascinating and, and, and seemingly very well, deserved of the recognition that it's got. Um, let's switch gears now to uh, something I've been really excited to talk to you about your new book. Uh, yeah. It's coming out in the beginning of May, May 1st, I think. Is that yeah. what it is? Yep. So, um, so uh, healing at work. Tell me a little bit about the concept of the book and what inspired you to, is this your first book? It's my first book, and my co-author is Martha Finney, who uh, Mm -hmm. The Magic of Martha Finney has really brought this book to life. Uh, And yes, it's my first book, so I'm very, very excited. It's been a lifelong dream, and uh, it's been a long journey, but I am excited because I believe that this book will transform people's experiences in the workplace Mm -hmm. uh, in, in really so many people, me included, for many, many years of my career, think of the workplace as a place of stress. You know, um, I, I think uh, I don't know about you and your role. Probably there's no stress in your job. But oh, no, the, no, work, yeah. the workplace can be a place that's challenging. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, what I didn't realize for so many years of my career, my success was really fueled by an underlying need that I felt that I had to always prove myself. And it was, um, I guess you could call it the overachiever syndrome that but no matter what I achieved, it was never enough. And it never really filled whatever it was inside of me that was empty. And mm-hmm. so there was this realization um, along the way that I was really, I, I don't know how else to explain it, but living a very unconscious wounded career path mm-hmm. and uh, unaware about how much my my dysfunctional childhood, we didn't talk about that when I did my intro, but you know, the research shows that about two thirds of us have experienced one of the 10 adverse childhood experiences, which are pretty negative things, uh, emotional abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, mental illness in the family, addiction, um, criminal behavior, there's this list of 10 things. Um, I didn't realize how much my, my upbringing shaped my belief system, my, my negative beliefs about myself and how much that was draining me in my job and, and how much it was fueling my overworking, you know, work-life balance, um, beating myself up at night when I felt like what I'd done at work wasn't enough. And as much as the success was outward, looked like a great career internally, it was a miserable place to be. Hmm. And, um, as I, I became, more aware of my limiting belief that I wasn't good enough. Somehow I walked away from my childhood with that belief and I adopted some strategies to help me navigate that childhood, which were people pleasing and perfectionism. Hmm. And the companies I worked for love those behaviors (laughs) because we're always trying to please everybody. And I know there are a lot of perfectionists and people pleasers in the corporate halls, the executive halls of a lot of companies. Um, But the 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 drain and the impact on my life uh, was negative. Hmm. And I look back now at those years where I was using work to try to get validated Uh, in terms of, you know, somehow decided it was everybody else's job to determine if I was good enough. That was not my job. My job was to show them I was good enough. Um, But the impact in terms of the relationship with my kids as they were growing up, I don't feel like I was present for them. Um, It certainly took a toll on my former marriage because I was just too consumed about 
you know, trying to, to achieve something, to feel something that I was never feeling. Mm -hmm. And so kind of in this place of too much stress, anxiety, and worry, which often for a lot of people, including me, leads to addictive behavior, could be drinking, shopping, eating, overworking, all those things are, are pretty common. But how do you teach people that they don't have to live that kind of a career? Mm. And actually, that's exactly what Martha and I do in the book is teaching people to go from this unconscious place of our careers, which is, you know, there's a guy, Jeff Pfeiffer, who wrote a book called Dying for a Paycheck. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw that, <laughs> but it lays out all the negative side effects of the workplace. And what Martha and I do in our book is we actually teach people how to use the workplace as a laboratory for emotional healing. Mm. And I love our, our cover. It's got the bumper cars. I don't know. I, this is, I'm excited. We finally had the book proof. The bumper, cool, car, yeah. the bumper cars reflect conflict at work. Mm. And I don't know, have you ever had conflict in your workplace? <laughs> Probably more often than I'd like. <laughs> yeah. So Martha and I call them bumper car moments. And actually the bumper car moments is when sometimes we crash into somebody else at work mm, or mm -hmm. they crash into us and we have a negative reaction, negative emotions come forward. Those are actually the best times to practice new ways of responding. Hmm. And, and if we're not in this conscious place of managing ourselves and our careers, we can very quickly go into the spiral downward into the stress, anxiety, and worry. And so that's a long answer to your question, but I'm, I'm very excited about the book because I do think it's going to help people have a very different experience in their careers. Yeah. And I, 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 I want to kind of build on that a little bit. I'm interested though, you said that at some point along your career path, you became aware how did that happen? Because I could see, I mean, obviously people value drive. They value success, growth, you know, uh, climbing the ladder, a bigger paycheck. How did you kind of take a step back and, and look at yourself and say something's not right here? Yeah, actually, there was a major turning point for me um, when I was in my first really big vice president job. So I was the head of HR for a multi-billion dollar company, multi-billion dollar business. And all my strategies, all my people pleasing strategies, perfectionism strategies that had worked for 15 years in my career, all of a sudden were backfiring. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to prove myself to this new group of leaders. It was nine leaders on the team, nine men and myself. And no matter how hard I tried, it was like I was pushing them away. And I, I mean, 11 months, I'd go home, I'd drink my Chardonnay, I'd beat myself up, felt terrible. I was lost. I mean, I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is executive hood. This sucks. <laughs> I thought I better update my resume. I don't think it's going too well. And I was very fortunate to have been investing in an executive coach at the time. And I was in tears. I mean, I was really upset. I felt like I was was not doing, I was not adding any value. And she had me do an exercise. And this is really, it's going to sound weird, but it had a huge impact on me. She said, I want you to pick the, you know, of all the guys that are, that are in this group, which ones are the, are the worst? Who are the worst to you? You know, so honestly, there was one guy who'd walk down in the morning just for fun, slam his fist on the window just to watch me jump. I was like, wow. entertainment, entertainment, right? <laughs> so out of the nine guys, I picked four. And then she had me imagine, she said, I want you to imagine that they're in, you're in their eyes looking at you. And if they had to pick an animal to represent you symbolically, what animal would they pick for you? Hmm. And I thought for a minute, I imagined myself in their eyes and I thought, I started laughing. I said, oh my God, I'm a golden retriever puppy dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all I want him to do is pat me on the head and tell me I'm being a good girl. Hmm. And, you know, it's sort of silly, but that's what I, I was this sort of weak little puppy looking for attention. Hmm. And then he had me get back in my eyes and tell me what, what animal would I pick for each of them? And it, there was a grizzly bear, a gorilla, a wolf with long fangs and a hyena circling mm. and laughing, but ready to go in for the kill. And she said, how's that little puppy dog doing with those ferocious animals? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I was so focused on trying to please them that I was this needy, you know, um, weak energy. And, and it was this conscious awareness of I, I don't have to prove myself to these guys. Mm -hmm. And so she actually had me adopt a different animal. I picked a lioness, you know, stronger, more powerful, will fight if she needs to, but not necessarily go looking for the hunt. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, with a lot of, you know, initial support in terms of coaching for each one of these four, you know, rough and rough guys, um, just start taking them on in coming mm. from a whole conscious place of I'm not the puppy dog. I don't need you to validate me. That's not your job. That's my job. And it totally changed the whole game. And that was that was probably one of the very first wake up calls I had on becoming more conscious about how that people pleasing perfectionism um, and, and frankly, fear based behavior of not being good enough was influencing how I showed up at work. Uh, it's fascinating. And in your book talks about you mentioned it, these these list of 10 things uh, that can kind of contribute to that perception. Uh, and these are from your childhood. You know, you call them aces. Uh, I, I what what is where did that concept come from is this research that has been done did you come up with the, the term ace oh, I did uh, not. tell me a little bit about it this was a research study that was i believe it was sponsored by kaiser permanente um, major mm -hmm. health organization in california two doctors dr felipe i believe i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name correctly and dr ananda mm -hmm. and they did this research i believe it was with seventeen thousand adults in the united wow. states and they basically asked the adults these questions, 10 questions related to the 10 adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was shocking that two thirds of the population that were asked the questions, two thirds had experienced at least one of the adverse childhood experiences. And I believe 40% had experienced two or more. Um, I think it's almost 13% have experienced four or more. Wow. And, and there's amazing research. There's a book called The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke, uh, who um, started noticing that kids that showed up in her pediatric office who were experiencing health issues, uh, she started to create linkages between their own childhood traumas. And so there's also another gentleman named Dr. Bruce Perry. Um, actually, he and Oprah Winfrey have just written a new book. It's coming out at the end of April that also he is probably one of the world leading experts on childhood trauma in the ACEs research. And, um, and basically what the research shows is that if you've experienced one or more, it puts you at higher risks of a variety of different health uh, related problems, heart disease, cancer, um, all kinds of other things. And so, you know, from my own standpoint, I never, ever would have associated the word trauma with my childhood. I, you know, I had some challenges in my childhood with my, my dad, who had a lot of issues with anger. But I always thought there are a lot more people who have a lot, a lot worse than I do. And so the concept of childhood trauma and I didn't, it was like a concept that didn't connect to me at all mm. until I went to a program called Healing Trauma. <laughs> uh, somebody had recommended it to me at an organization called Onsite in Tennessee. And it was a seven day program. And um, I discovered in that program that actually things that had happened when I was younger uh, in some cases are considered a small T trauma, you know, so not, not like a major T. Um, there were some major T's, major, you know, big T trauma or little T. But what they explained was you could have a lot of little T traumas throughout your childhood, chronic minor traumas that can, can, can together cumulatively equate to a big T trauma. Mm. And, and actually, when I take the ACEs survey myself of the 10, I experienced five of the 10. Wow. And my co-author experienced, Martha experienced eight of the 10. And so this, this concept of, you know, I sort of disassociated with my childhood. And I, this isn't about blaming parents or anything like that. But it was recognizing that there were some challenging things in my childhood. And actually, two thirds of the adult population would the research would suggest have experienced one of those 10 or more. Mm. And the reality is it does affect our brains. It does affect when you're in a situation when you're younger and you're constantly in a state of hypervigilance trying to manage. Like for me, it was managing my dad's unpredictable rage. So when you're in a state of um, hypervigilance and trying to manage the environment, your brain changes. The cortisol, the stress cortisol is released more frequently, which is the research Dr. Perry does. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no neuroscience or any, uh, scientist or anything like that, but it does. The brain adapts in abnormal circumstances in, as ways to manage it. And, and, and what's interesting about the impact in the workplace is that if, and this is, you know, this is before I was conscious of this, 
if something happened at work where a boss was angry at me, I immediately went into freeze, fight, flight, or freeze. I would freeze. I would shake and tremble. I would want to cry and run and go hide under my bed. I had a manager a long time ago in my career who literally had a little statue she would leave on her desk. One side of the statue was Glinda the Good Witch, and the other side was the Wicked Witch of the, was the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. And she would change that little statue on her desk every day, depending on her mood. (laughs) So she was the the wicked witch. You didn't want to be anywhere near her. And one time I, um, I won't go through all the details because we don't have time, but she got really angry at me. And I remember sitting in her office, the wicked witch was turned towards me. (laughs) I (laughs) I was brand new in my career and she just like had an all blown out rage fit at me because of something she perceived I'd done that was, she thought was, was not right. Hmm. And I, in that moment, I became, I, I froze and just teared. All I wanted to do was run away and hide under the bed with my dog, like I used to do when I was little. You know, and so it was debilitating. I felt like she cut me off at the knees. And actually, she ended up, she left the organization. I actually left before she did. But, you know, it was totally inappropriate now looking back at it. But in the moment, I thought, I'm bad. I screwed mm. up. I'm in trouble. And it's that that gripping fear of whatever it was that we dealt with. My gripping fear when I was little was my raging dad who scared the heck out of me. And, you know, in the middle of a professional setting, like completely getting lost in the trigger mm. of, of being in trouble. That was a huge trigger for me. You know, fast forward now, I was in total unconscious state, total unconscious. You know, she it was the scariest thing that ever happened to me, sort of, you know, my dad being so angry. But now fast forwarding, and which is exactly what we teach in the book, is how do you use the, those bumper car moments? How do you manage an angry boss in a way that isn't coming from this unconscious wounded place, mm. but from a conscious healing place that I'm an adult you know, my childhood reality, you know, you're not coming to work with me today. I'm going to deal with this as a grown up and manage it. And we teach readers in the book how to navigate the bumper car moments in a completely different way. And mm. ultimately what we're teaching, which is my, my life purpose is we're teaching self-acceptance to create mm. a more fulfilling, successful career in your, in your workplace, as well as in life. Yeah. Very, very fascinating stuff. I, I'm thinking about the audience for your book. I mean, clearly like you, there is a lot of people out there that have no idea that they've had some sort of thing happen in their past that might be carried with them to the way that they are living or working today. Um, you know, two thirds of, of Americans, I think you said two thirds, that's a big number that have one of the, you know, so, so I, so I'm, I'm thinking about the readers that a, use your book to identify something that they might not be cognizant of B to figure out, all right, how do I have the, 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 uh, the, just the knowledge that this is actually going on right now. And then what, what can I do about it? But then there's probably also a a, a subset of people that, I mean, if you're leading people, just knowing that this could be impacting two thirds of your team, I mean, that's powerful in it of itself, just to be aware and have empathy for what what uh, the way that you interact with people or the way that you manage interactions between other team members. So is is your book focused on leaders or is it more is it more general? I mean, I I know it's focused on the workplace and I I, I do want to ask you a couple more questions about the idea of healing in the workplace, because I, I you just gave a couple examples of how we bring some of this past baggage, maybe that's not the right word for it, but we bring that into the workplace and it, it perpetuates itself with these interactions that we have in these bumper car moments. But tell me it like from your perspective, who's the, who's the kind of the target audience, the target reader for your book? Target reader is, is broad. It's executives, leaders, and, and, and professionals. Mm. So I personally believe that individuals and companies will greatly benefit from the book. For themselves or for a family member or for a colleague. My greatest hope is that I can get to as many of the executives and CEOs and leaders, not only of companies, but of nonprofits, mm. of countries, of communities, global communities, to influence how the top executives and leaders are thinking about 
how they shape culture and how they shape healthy companies. I, that's ultimately my biggest goal is that I reach as many leaders that can influence the company experience as possible. And I also am a realist. I mean, I work with employees for years, all my years, and I see the pain and suffering that's happening when someone's working for a leader who's angry, aggressive, corporate bully, whatever category you want to put them in, is that can create so much negative stress for people deeper in the organization that just having the awareness from the book will help people better better navigate that. But ultimately, I'm trying to change companies. Mm. And I can do it at an individual level. But I also recognize it has to be done at the systemic level. And so the role of leaders and executives is a key, a key, key element of my target strategy, my target audience. Gotcha. And and when you talk about the idea of healing, you know, obviously, I, the, the medical sense is you've got a wound and it heals and it's gone, right? So when you talk about when you talk about trauma, especially trauma that happened as a child that you've now been living with subconsciously for, for decades, maybe, you know, is that something that can heal and you can use the workplace in these interactions to practice or promote that healing? Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple things about the workplace that make the workplace a perfect place for healing. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Martin Seligman's work on um, flourish, positive psychology. Hmm. He's got a model that I love. and, And Martha and I talk about it in the book, which basically says that there are five things that are necessary for someone to flourish. And actually, all five of these things are achievable in the workplace. Mm. Uh, I hope I can get them all right. One of them is positive engagement. You know, so the company hired you because they thought you were the best one to do this job. So immediately there's this positive um, emotion, this positive experience. So positive emotion is the first one. The second one is engagement. Um, it's, it's all about, you know, do you feel engaged? And you know, because you talk to lots of HR leaders, that we all care about the engagement of our workforces. Mm-hmm. We're asking them, we're, we're launching a Pulse survey tomorrow to find out how people think and care about the, how we work going forward. So PE, uh, our per, uh, is the thir- uh, third one is relationships. Uh, that, that's another ingredient to flourishing is you have to have positive relationships. Think about all the relationships we have in the workplace. Oftentimes, people's best friends are who they're working with. So that's relationships. P-E-R-M is meaning. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies, um, you know, we join companies because of the purpose of those companies. I love applied materials because it's about making possible a better future. Mm-hmm. So aligning a person's values and meaning to the company's purpose and meaning. And then finally, let's see, P-E-R-A-M-A is accomplishments, is making sure that we can achieve, that we have an opportunity to accomplish things. And that's what the workplace is all about. So this model PERMA, P-E-R-M-A, all five of those ingredients to flourishing are achievable in the workplace. So that's the first thing I would say. From a healing standpoint, is this becoming aware of the unconscious wounded career path and the conscious healing career path. That's kind of the first step of realizing that maybe my negative emotional reactions and the stress and anxiety and worry that I'm experiencing may have more to do with some outdated scripts and limiting beliefs that I can choose to do differently. And that's the other piece of the book is weaving in the neuro neuroplasticity uh, research and the positive psychology research that says we can actually rewire our brains. Our brains, brains are plastic and we can rewire our beliefs and, and reactions to negative things that previously set us down this path to, to spiral into a lot of pain and suffering. Hmm. And so the healing concept is using the neuroplasticity research the positive psychology, the opportunity for all these positive things that can happen in the workplace, and then using those bumper car moments, the conflict moments, those are the clues that if I'm having a negative reaction to uh, some kind of a, a conflict that you and I just had, it's a clue to say, here's an opportunity to practice rewiring your brain. You don't have to do this through the unconscious wounded brain. You can do it through the conscious healing brain. And here are some techniques to do that. So that's the healing piece. And the, and the, the journey, you know, it, it's hard to look forward to conflict. But honestly, when it happens and we have an overreaction, that's the first time to say, i got to manage my trigger because this is a clue that I can do this differently. I don't have to take on all this outdated energy 
about how I'm supposed to feel, what I'm supposed to do, um, you know, how I should be self-comforting myself because I feel so poorly because of what happened. The healing happens through all the practice. And you know, we've got a whole section in the book called Bumper Car Moments in Action. I could do 100 bumper car moments because of all the experiences that happen at work. Getting missed for a promotion, uh, being misunderstood in the meeting, being interrupted in the meeting, a manager not calling you back. I mean, the, the list of conflicts that can set us off with the old patterns, the outdated scripts. The workplace is a great place to practice. <laughs> I don't know. I, we spent a lot of time there, so we might as well leverage that. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. There's, and I, I think the workplace also has this, it's the professional nature of it to some extent, that there's at least some boundaries there that might not exist in some people's homes that like I think make it even uh, more appropriate to be a place where you practice this. I love the idea of practicing managing conflict and be, you know being aware of it. Very, very cool. Um, the, the one question I had, and I don't even really know how to ask it is, is when you talk about see, you know, moving from the golden retriever puppy to the lioness, you know, when you talk about self-acceptance, how do you pair that with, with still promoting someone to drive for success? Or maybe a better way to, maybe the better way to ask it is, is can conflict be good? I mean, good, good in the sense, yes, that it's a, it's a way to practice and to overcome, but can conflict in the name of innovation or disruption, you know, or new ideas. Yeah. Is, is, is there a place for that in, Absolutely. in this world? Yeah. Absolutely. So here, it's a great question. It's actually a really perceptive question is conflict is natural and mm. conflict can create innovation, uh, new ways of doing things, people challenging the status quo. Absolutely. The, the healing opportunity is how we manage those conflict moments rather mm. than personalizing them, rather than beating ourselves up. We can completely handle conflict coming from our kind of what I would call our adult reality self. In other words, we don't get sucked into, uh, you know, or, you know, it's almost like you fall into the swamp all of a sudden of all this negative emotion about ourselves. If you're challenging me in, in creating conflict, by you know opposing an idea or coming up with a different idea, that's positive. That's a healthy dynamic. As long as I don't go home and start drinking because I feel like I I somehow um, mismanaged it or that you were uh, bullying me or you know it's all the internal interpretation. Mm -hmm. So conflict is a normal part of the world of companies and it will continue to be that way for all the positive productive reasons you've just articulated the piece that i'm working at eliminating is people misinterpreting because of their old scripts their old triggers their old limiting beliefs all these moments of suffering because of the conflict the conflicts are going to still happen regardless. Mm -hmm. but the, how do i interpret it and how do i manage my, when i get triggered in a way that's much more productive and healthy rather than this, this spiral down experience. Yeah, and the really cool thing about it too is that if you can be successful, if people read your book and become aware and use the workplace to practice a healthier way to engage in or manage conflict, don't internalize it, don't bring it home, the, the impact might be uh, you know, less aces on the next generation, right? Like less, a, a more effective way to, you know, you're, you're learning at work and you're taking that home into your personal life, your home life, right? Yep. It, it's, that is absolutely beautiful. I was just talking to another leader. His name's Yuri, Yuri Van Geest um, over in Rotterdam. And we were talking about this on Monday and he said, he introduced the concept of ancestral healing. You know, in other words, the generational healing mm. that as we become more conscious of how our past are in some cases driving the career bus and we can start to unwind that, we can start to impact our, our generations. And the, this idea of, you know, the, the, the different generations of pain and addiction and anger and rage and, and all these things that happen because people feel rejected or worthless or unlovable or not good enough or, you know, whatever it is, you know, I've been talking to so many people on this journey as has Martha and, you know, finding out underneath everything, what is your underlying limiting belief? Mm. I can't do anything right. You know, all these negative beliefs, I believe are fueling 
the ongoing abuse, the adverse childhood experiences. I think about the impact on my own kids of being mm -hmm. absent and and too focused on trying to get that validation at work. Um, and, you know, they I'm sure neglect is one of the categories in the ACEs. I'm sure they would say they felt neglected, although their dad was home. You know, they had both loving parents, but I was distracted and consumed by my own limiting beliefs unconsciously. Mm. So I love, I love what you just said. Absolutely. Completely. That is part of this mission. Well, congratulations. I mean, to have, to have your first foray into being an author, the first book you're writing to have so much potential impact and power and passion behind it. Uh, it's so remarkable. When your book comes out May 1st is where can people find it? Amazon? It'll be on Amazon. Yep. Absolutely. Wonderful. Amazon. It'll cool. be Kindle as well as paperback. And then later this summer, I'll be coming out with a special edition hardcover copy as well. Cool. All right. Well, healing at work. Uh, very excited to uh, uh, to read the entire thing. I've been privileged to get a sneak peek. So uh, thank you for doing this. This very important work, uh, Susan. It's 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 fascinating stuff. Um, I usually end each episode by asking a couple personal questions, although this has been a personal conversation and I appreciate you being open and sharing everything that you have um, from a professional stance or even a personal one, uh, it, you know, for the listeners looking to uh, kind of grow in their careers, clearly Healing at Work is a great resource that they should be checking out next month or this month, depending on when this, this airs. But um, uh, what has been a resource that's been especially valuable to you in your career? Well, one resource that has been incredibly valuable is, and I talk a little bit about in, I talk about it a little bit in the book, it's called my personal board of advisors. Hmm. There was a period of time when I was at one of the Fortune 500 companies where I had 10 bosses in 10 years. Wow. And I, I really did not believe that my my career development mattered to anybody. I didn't feel like I was um, I didn't feel like I had anybody who was helping me grow in my career. And it was a very lonely place to be and completely kind of I didn't really plan it this way, but it ended up happening. I created this group of people around me that I call my personal board of advisors. And some of them were friends that I could call for a sport or, or um, you know, a kind word, uh, my cheerleaders. Others were professional people. You know, when I took my first chief HR officer job at Rockwell, I, um, I'd never been one before. So I was lucky that Mara Swan, who at the time was EVP of talent and strategy at Manpower, became one of my personal board members. She, she was always there for me for advice or Tracy Kehoe, who at the time was the head of HR at Hewitt. And I just started to build out this group of people. Um, my former CEO, I asked him if he'd be on my personal board of advisors. So I created this support team. I'd highly recommend it. And yeah. you know, it, there, there's lots of different ways you can go about it. But after I realized I had this like support net around me, I never felt alone. I always knew that I could call on any member of my board, depending on their area of expertise, um, to help me. And so that was a huge resource in, in supporting me. I love it. A personal board of advisors. I'm going to do that. That's that's great advice. I love it. Yeah. So so you've obviously had some great exposure to some very effective and ineffective leaders throughout your career. I'm interested to know if you had to describe a couple characteristics of those that you found to be effective uh, that you really admired. Uh, what were some of the the traits that they shared? Uh, I thought a lot about this, and I, I would say there's one overarching trait that I think matters the most for leaders, and that is self-awareness. Mm. Every one of us has issues. <laughs> the reality is, is we all have pluses and minuses. We all have good days and bad days. And, and ultimately, it's about understanding ourselves. And I think our book helps a lot to that, to that degree. But this understanding of how do I play to my strengths and how do I manage and downplay my weaknesses? And how do I put people around me that help me do that? Is what I've seen great leaders be able to do. Mm. And, um, and those leaders who are not self-aware, and actually Corporate Leadership Council says 25% of people overestimate themselves. 25% of people underestimate themselves and only about 50% of people have an accurate view of themselves. And so there's a lot of opportunity for more self-awareness. Sure. Um, I think the lack of self-awareness and the lack of how our 
how the elements of our temperament can impact others. By my mind being profession, perfectionism and people pleasing, I have to keep in mind that as a perfectionist, I not only set unrealistic expectations of myself, I can have the tendency to do the same thing for my team. And so being aware of that, I give my team permission to say, is this realistic or unrealistic? Mm. You know, so it's, it's understanding how to manage those elements of temperament that can impair us. Yeah. So, so, so wise. I, uh, final question, and you've already shared so much great advice. So this might be just, uh, I, you know, I'm pulling out one more, one more request. If, if you were retiring tomorrow, um, and maybe, uh, you were on the personal board of advisors for someone earlier on in their career, what's a, what's a morsel of wisdom you'd let you'd pass on to them? Well, I'd have to say the morsel of wisdom is getting on to the conscious healing career path mm. and, and, and following it because in doing so, you will discover deeper levels of self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. And when we feel that we've reached deeper levels of self-acceptance, we will have a more fulfilling career. That's absolutely what I would, I would teach. Wonderful. Well, this has been such a great conversation, Susan. I, I, I again, I, I so appreciate you and your time and your perspective. Thanks so much for everything you shared today. Thank you so much. The time flew by. I really appreciate it. A lot of fun, George. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to rate our show. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Work Inspired Podcast so that you don't miss any of the incredible guests we have planned for upcoming episodes. We'll continue to find the best and brightest minds in business so that you can learn, grow, and succeed, and so that we can all work inspired. Work Inspired is brought to you by BOS, a leader in commercial working environments and a Hayworth best-in-class dealership. Experience our 360 approach and discover the team, tools, and techniques required to navigate the complexity of your next workspace at BOS.com. If you have ideas, feedback, or would like to be featured on our show, please email podcast at BOS.com. Thank you for listening. This has been a Workspace Digital production. If you're interested in launching a podcast at your organization, please email info at workspace.digital for a free consultation.